You're listening to another New Hope Chapel, New Hope podcast. Chapel podcast. Okay, kids, everybody have a noisemaker? All right, now let me give you the rule. You can only use the noisemaker when a certain word is said. I'm going to be reading the story of Esther. It's in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read you the whole story, but you're going to be listening very carefully because there's a really bad guy who's in the story. And every time you hear his name, and I'll tell you what it is in a minute, I want you to make your noisemaker make noise, and I want you to say, boo, because he's really bad, okay? And his name is, ready to practice? Haman. Good job. And at all other times, the noisemaker has to say, totally quiet. Okay? Can you do that? All right, we'll practice one more time. Blah, 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 blah. Haman! Excellent. I think we're ready to get started. The story of Purim begins at a magnificent banquet held at the court of the Persian king Ahasuerus. Most people believe he was also known as Xerxes. This week-long celebration was held in Susa, the ancient Persian city, which contained the winter palace of the king. There were actually two separate banquets held, one for the king, his counselors, and all the men of Susa, and the other one was given by Queen Vashti for the women of the court and nobility. After doing a lot of drinking, King Ahasuerus sent for the queen to appear before the men at his banquet. She was noted for her beauty, and he wished to kind of show her off to the men of the city. But Queen Vashti was from an ancient and noble lineage, and she did not want to be paraded in front of a bunch of drunk men. And so she refused to come. And her refusal was a humiliation for the king. Ahasuerus, still half drunk and now very embarrassed, was furious with her failure to obey his command. And his counselors told him that he owed it to the men of the kingdom to make an example of Queen Vashti. Because when other Persian women heard about how she had acted, then they might treat their husbands with that same disrespect. So Ahasuerus issued a public decree that Vashti was to be banished, and her royal position would be given to one more worthy than she had proved to be. So a nationwide search for a new queen began. It would be a beauty contest. The prettiest girls in the land would be brought to Susa for 12 months of beauty treatments and live in the king's harem. One of them would be chosen by the king to be the new queen. Now, there was a young Jewish girl among the candidates, and her her Jewish name was Hadassah, but her Persian name was Esther. She was an orphan, and she had been raised by her older cousin, Mordecai, who loved her like a daughter. Well, before she left for the palace, Mordecai warned Esther not to tell anyone that she was Jewish because they were aliens exiled in a foreign land and she might be treated badly if anybody knew. Esther was beautiful, both on the outside and inside. The man in charge of all the women was very impressed with Esther. And when it was time for her to meet the king, he advised her on what to bring and what to say. Everyone loved Esther. The Bible says that she found favor in the eyes of all who knew her. The king felt the same way. Of all the beautiful women in the land, he chose Esther to be his new queen. He crowned her and gave her a great banquet to celebrate. 
Not long after her installation as a queen, Esther's uncle Mordecai overheard two guards at the king's gate planning to assassinate the king. He told Esther, who in turn warned the king, the plotters were hanged and Mordecai's good deed was reported in the book of Chronicles, the king's chronicles. Well, one of the king's most important administrators was a man, get ready for it, named Haman. He was a man of great influence and power as the king gave him authority over all the princes in the kingdom. Everyone bowed down to him when he passed the king's gate, except one person, Mordecai. His refusal to bow was insulting, and that infuriated Haman. Some of the other men at the gate asked Mordecai why he would not bow down to Haman. He told them because it was, it was because he was a Jew. When they reported this to Haman, his anger burned, not just against Mordecai, but against all the Jewish people in the land. He started to have a plot to have every Jew killed. To decide when it should happen, he cast lots called Pur. They indicated that it should happen on the 12th month, the month of Adar, nine months from then. Haman then went to the king and he filled his mind with all kinds of ideas about the Jews. He labeled them as different than the rest of the empire who obeyed different laws who were an actual danger to the king's reign. The Jews, said Haman, must be eliminated for the good of the kingdom. And the king fell for it. Not having a clue that Esther, his queen, and Mordecai, the man to whom he owed his life, were both Jews. They agreed on a date for the slaughter, and the king issued a decree. He sent messengers to carry the command to every corner of the empire. Then the king and Haman sat down to have a celebratory drink. When Mordecai read the decree, he did what all the Jews did upon hearing the news. He tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and rubbed ashes onto his head. He made no secret of his grief, wailing loudly for everyone to hear. Anyone in mourning was not allowed to pass through the king's gate, but Esther eventually heard about Mordecai's mourning through others who saw him while passing through the gate at the palace. She didn't know why Mordecai was in such agony, because she'd been living at the harem, but she sent him new clothes, and he sent them back unused. So Esther sent the man in charge, oops, got ahead of myself there, um, out to meet Mordecai. Mordecai told him about the slaughter edict and the money that had already been paid from the treasury to make that plan happen. He wanted Esther to approach the king, tell him she was a Jew, and plead for the mercy of her people. The eunuch went back and reported all this to Esther. Esther was terrified. Tell him I can't approach the king without being summoned, she told the eunuch. Anyone who does that will be put to death unless by some miracle he extends the scepter to him. 
He hasn't sent for me in 30 days. There is no reason to think he'd be pleased to see me now. Mordecai was not going to accept Esther's fearful excuse. He told the eunuch to tell her, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Esther got the point. She could be part of God's plan to deliver his people or not, but God was going to accomplish his purposes and keep his promises to his people. It would be better to die trying than to sit back and do nothing. So Esther sent one more message to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews in Susa, pray and fast for me. I will do the same with my maidens in the palace, and then I'll approach the king. And if I die, I die. Well, the big scary day finally arrived. Esther put on her royal robes and went into the court of the king. The king looked up and saw Esther at the end of the great hall. He lit up with a smile and he extended his scepter toward the uninvited guest. And with great relief, she walked up to the throne and retouched the top of his scepter. What troubles you, my queen? The king asked. He knew something important must be happening for Esther to risk her life by approaching him without being summoned. What do you need? Even half to my kingdom is yours for the asking. Esther bowed low to the ground. I would like to invite the king to a special meal that I've prepared for him, if it pleases him to come. And I would like him to bring his right-hand man, Haman, as well. The king loved this idea. He quickly summoned Haman. And together, they went to a beautiful banquet that Esther had prepared. Everything about the meal and Esther's company pleased the king. So he told her again, what is it you need? I will do whatever you wish. Up to half my kingdom can be yours for the asking. Well, Esther wanted additional time to soften the king's heart even more. She asked if he would come to a second banquet the next night. And could he bring his right-hand man with him? The king agreed. Now... Haman was pretty full of himself as he left the palace that night because no one else in the whole kingdom was being honored like he was being invited to that private banquet with the king and queen and just him. But his pleasure in that accomplishment didn't last long because as he walked through the king's gate on the way home, he passed Mordecai. That blasted man still refused to bow down to him as the others were doing, and it made him crazy with rage. When he got home, he told his wife all about the banquet and how he'd been invited back the next day for the second feast, but his pleasure in the great privilege was ruined every time he thought about that stupid Mordecai refusing to honor him. And his wife and friends sympathized. They also reminded him he had a lot of power by order of the king. So this is what they told him. Build the gallows 50 cubits high and ask the king to hang Mordecai on it, they said. Once that's over, you can go and enjoy the banquet knowing he'll never get the chance to insult you again. Well, Haman thought that was a great idea. 
So he ordered the gallows to be built. Meanwhile, back at the palace, the king was having trouble sleeping. He ordered that a royal chronicle be read to him to lull him to sleep. Nothing better than a bunch of old records to put you right out. <laughs> the servant read the account of Mordecai's warning of the assassination plot against the king. Ahasuerus sat up in bed. What reward was given to Mordecai, he asked. And he was told, eh, nothing was done for Mordecai. The king shook his head. Mordecai's reward was long overdue. Who's in the court right now, he said. And lo and behold, Haman had just entered the court, having come to ask the king about hanging Mordecai on the new gallows the next day. The king had him brought to his personal quarters. I need some ideas, he told Haman. What ideas do you have that would greatly honor someone that the king wishes to reward? Well, Haman could barely keep his delight at this question to himself. Of course, the king wanted to honor him. He tried to think of his fondest wish. Let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and put a royal crown on his head and let one of the princes lead him around on town on horseback proclaiming, this is the man the king wants to honor. Then he got ready to act surprised when the king said it was going to be him. The king thought this was a splendid idea. Excellent. I want you to do exactly that for Mordecai the Jew. Haman, his face went from a brilliant anticipatory smile to total astonishment. He was surprised, all right. Honor Mordecai? This was his worst nightmare, but he didn't really have a choice because you don't disobey the king. So he did just as he commanded. He told Mordecai, he led Mordecai through the streets, robed in royal garments and crowned on the king's horse, proclaiming his honor to everyone they met, but inwardly he seethed with rage and hatred. Soon, it was evening again, and time for a second banquet. H Haman and the king once more enjoyed Esther's special preparations. As they reclined over a glass of wine, the king asked Esther once again, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. Esther took a deep breath. The moment of truth had come. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my request. For my people and I have been marked for destruction. I wouldn't even bother you about this if I'd only been sold as a slave or it wouldn't be worth your trouble. But we're talking about complete annihilation here. And I beg you to stop this terrible thing from happening. The king took one look at his beautiful queen and he felt nothing but outrage. Who's planning such a thing, he said. Who would dare to threaten the life of my queen and her people? Esther pointed her finger at the king's right-hand man. A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. <laughs> Furious, the king jumped up from his place. Beside himself, he stomped out without a word into the garden. Haman <laughs> knew he was dead meat. 
and he forced himself up onto his shaky knees, and unless he could somehow beg and receive mercy from the queen, he knew he was in trouble. So he fell onto her on the reclining couch, and he began to plead for his life. And the king walked back in at that very moment. It didn't look good. Will he even assault the queen with me right outside the door, the king said. Seeing the king's fierce anger, one of the eunuchs standing in attendance made a very timely suggestion. There's a new gallows being built, 50 cubits high, that this man wanted to hang Mordecai on, the one you just honored this morning, O king. The king saw the justice of this right away. Hang him on, and he commanded. So Haman was hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. And Mordecai was put in charge over the household of Haman from that day forth. The king also set out another edict, this time for the Jews. It gave them the right to assemble and defend themselves and destroy anyone who rose up against them. Riders went out to the farthest corners of the empire to deliver the message. The Jews rejoiced because now anyone who would try to kill them no longer had the support of the king. When the day finally, originally designated for the Jewish slaughter finally arrived, most people in the kingdom actually assisted the Jews and protected them against their enemies. There were 75,000 enemies killed in the fighting. All 10 of Haman's sons were also hanged on the gallows. It was a day of great victory. The Jews made an annual holiday of rejoicing and feasting from that day forward to celebrate God's protection and deliverance of his people, and they called it Purim after the lots, remember the poor, that were cast by Haman. And that is what we celebrate today. All right, good job, noisemakers. So I want you to take your noisemakers right now, and, and uh, are you going to go around with the basket? Pastor Justin's going to go ahead and, and collect those. But I do want to talk for a couple of minutes about this story. I hope you can still be good listeners. All right, let's stop all the noisemakers. It's the teacher in me. I can't have anybody making noise when I'm talking. Well, here's the question. If you were Esther, what would you have done? She had to do a really brave thing, right? She had to go to the king, and she knew if the king wasn't happy to see her, and she had no idea if he was going to be happy because he hadn't even talked to her for 30 days, that she might be put to death. Well, that was a pretty scary thing to... Out of there. No longer living. Very bad thing. Well... So she was really brave. And you do always have to ask, when you read a story in the Bible, you have to say, why did God put this story in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from this story? Because obviously it's there for a reason. So you have to wonder, if I was Esther, what would I do? Would I be willing to put my life on the line like she did? You know, we, we think about scenarios sometimes about this. I remember when I was a kid, it was always communist. You know, the communist Russia, the communist Chinese. If you were in one of those countries and, you know, they burst into the door of where you were meeting as a church and said, who's Christians? And they were going to put to death anybody who said they were a Christian. We always wondered as kids, would I be brave enough to say I was? 
we think about that all the time, um, you know, with Muslims and, and with uh, the radical way that some of them uh, feel about Christians. And uh, when we wonder, and you know what? It's even on a smaller scale. Sometimes we even wonder if we're going to be able to say, uh, talk about Jesus and our loyalty to him, even when friends ask us, and we're not even being threatened at all. It's hard. It's hard to, be, to give the right answer. So the, the question is, can, do we think we would do it? Well, it's a really hard question to answer, isn't it? But I think this story kind of helps us a little bit because this story tells us three things that Esther knew so she was able to make the right choice. And so I want to talk about these just for a couple of minutes. The first one is this. Esther knew what got the Jews into the situation in the first place. You see, Esther was a Jew. She was a member of a very special group of people. When you go way back in history, all the way back to Exodus, in chapter 11 and 12, and God takes out this one guy named Abraham, and he sets him apart, and he says, I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation of people, and I'm going to have a special relationship with you. And you're going to love me, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to do amazing things, and I want to show who I am through your family, through your descendants, through the nation that they'll become one day. This is what he said. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. To your descendants, I'll give this land. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars and that's how many descendants you're going to have. As many as the stars are in the sky. That may not be a lot for when you live in Annapolis, but when you were living back then, there were no lights anywhere. And when you looked up in the skies, there were gazillions of them up there. They're still there. We just can't see them very well because of all the light. But Abraham knew. And then another time God told him, your descendants, your family members, are going to be as many as the grains of sand on the beach. You ever tried counting the grains of sand on the beach? There's a lot of them, right? So that's what God had promised. And God had done that. He had taken Abraham. Abraham had a son. He had a son. And that son had 12 sons. And they ended up into a million and a half people by the time they left Egypt and uh, came into the land that God had promised them. But the main reason God wanted to have those people set apart for him was he wanted to show himself through them. He wanted people to see them and know about him. But they failed. They didn't do a good job. And here's what the worst things they did. Instead of loving God only as their only God, they didn't do that. They started worshiping idols from the different people that lived around them, and they had all these gods. Well, God was not fond of that idea. He was very angry, as a matter of fact, and he let it go on for a while, but eventually he was going to send punishment. And he sent prophet after prophet with a message to the people, stop worshiping idols and come and just worship me as your God. That's what he told them. And this is one of the things he said to the prophet Isaiah. Alas, sinful nation, people weighted down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel and they've turned away from him. And God was angry and so he knew that they had to be stopped. And so he sent punishment on them. He sent judgment. He sent this huge empire called the Babylonian Empire down into Judah, and they wiped them out, conquered the land. But what these Babylonians did was this. They took all the smartest and the most um, successful people that had been living in Judah, 
and they took them back to their homeland, to Babylon, to live there as Babylonian citizens and to contribute to the country. It would be like if somebody came and took over the United States, they would probably get all the scientists, all the math whizzes, all the brilliant people, the thinkers of this world, of this country, and they would haul them off to their country so that they could work for them. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why Mordecai was there as well as Esther and uh, her parents before they died. But a lot of the Jews that were taken to live in this other land in Babylon, they still loved God. And so living in the foreign land didn't change that. And Esther was very fortunate to be raised by Mordecai, who did believe in God and understood that God had a plan. So Esther knew what the Jews had done to get themselves into this present situation, situation. But she also knew something else. Esther knew that God had a plan for his people. You see, the Babylonian Empire was eventually conquered by another big empire called the Persian Empire. Esther and Mordecai were still living in the same place, but now it was called Persia instead of Babylon. Um, and her husband, King Ahasuerus, <laughs> I can never say that word, um, that was his Persian name. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was his Persian name. But his Greek name, same guy, was Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the father of Darius, who was the king in the book of Daniel. Just to kind of help you connect the dots a little bit. But Esther and Mordecai were still living in the same place, but now it was Persia. But the prophets, God kept sending prophets um, even after they'd been exiled, because God wanted to know, them to know that even though they were being punished, he had not abandoned them. And when they repented and they turned back, he would rescue them and make them a strong nation once more. Oops, oh, I got the wrong thing there. What the heck? Okay, for I promise the, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you and I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you from all the nations and from the places where I've driven you and I'll bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. God had a plan. God kept sending his promises back to the people if you repent from worshiping these idols and you love me only, I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to restore everything to where it was before. So Esther knew that God had not abandoned his people. And when Mordecai said, if you remain silent at this time, dear Esther, relief will come from another place. And who knows whether or not you've attained royalty for such a time as this. You see what he's saying here? He was acknowledging that God was still involved with his people and God had a plan and he was still working out that plan for his people. So Esther knew that. She knew what got the Jews into the situation in the first place. She knew God had a plan for his people. And another thing that Esther knew, and this is my last point, is that Esther knew that God could be trusted. He knew how to take care of her people, and he did it in the desert for 40 years, for example, when they were wandering before they went to the promised land. He knew that he went before them when they entered the promised land and won all their battles for them. He knew that he rescued people from time and time again in the period of the judges when they were going against God, 
and he would continue to bail them out. He knew, she knew that he continued to send messages through the prophets the whole time they were in exile that he'd not abandoned them, just wanted their repentance. Esther knew God was a God to be trusted. Kind of reminds me of another story, <clears throat> the one I mentioned just a bit earlier, about Daniel, and, uh, and this was with um, King Artaxerxes' father, King Darius, and um, Darius had built this big statue, and he wanted everybody in Persia to bow down to this statue. Well, Jews couldn't bow down to something that wasn't God. I mean, they'd already been exiled for crying out loud. They're not going to make it even worse. So they weren't going to bow down to this statue. It was an idol, obviously. I mean, the king had built it. But anyway, so they told the king, no, they wouldn't bow down. It was these three guys, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Does that sound familiar? You guys know that story? And so they said, no, king, we're not going to bow down. The king said, I have built this fiery furnace, and I'm going to put you in it, and you're going to die if you don't do what I say. And they wouldn't do it. And this is what they said. It's a very interesting quote, one of my favorite in the Bible. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you see the phrase there? Even if he does not. They thought they knew what God would do. But they want to make it perfectly clear, if they had that wrong, that God was still their, the God that they were going to serve, no matter what he did. Why? How can you do that? Because you trust who God is. You trust in his character, in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his power, and say, you know what? God's going to do what he's going to do, and no matter what happens to me, I trust him. And that's exactly what these guys were saying here to King Darius. So when Mordecai, a generation later, reminded Esther that, um, that God was going to rescue the people one way or the other, he was giving Esther, an opportunity to be part of the plan. And so Esther moved. She, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, was willing to bet her life on the God that she knew had a plan and was going to carry it out. He could be trusted. She saw the big picture. She knew he said he, he would do what he said he would, and so she threw in her lot with the Lord. All right, back to that original question then. What would you do if you were faced with a life-threatening thing, whether it depended or not, that you were going to be willing to set yourself up as a follower of God? Well, I think we have a few things in common with Esther. One of them is God invites us to be part of his plan as well. God has a plan. But I think Esther's in the Bible to remind us that when we have a choice about demonstrating our loyalty and dedication to Jesus, we will remember that just like Esther, we're part of something bigger. Bigger. Because God is in this process, this plan of bringing the world to himself. He sent Jesus to die for the world, to pay for our sin, and he wants the world to believe in his only son. And believe it or not, he wants to use you and me to reveal all of that to the world. He wants us to be part of it. Now, he doesn't need us to accomplish his plan. He didn't need Esther. Like Mordecai said, relief's going to come from somewhere, Esther. Why don't you make it from you? 
And that's exactly what he's doing. He doesn't need us to accomplish, but he invites us to join him because of the blessings it will bring us. That's the whole thing. So then how do we get to the point, like Esther, that we're willing to take our life and throw it on the pile? Well, this is the reason. This is the thing. The more we know him, the easier it will be to trust him. So our job really is pretty simple. Our job is to trust God in order to participate in his plan. That's what we have to do. Well, how do you do that? How do you trust God? Well, you get to know him. Because when you know God and you know how good he is and you know how much he loves you and you know what, what wonderful things he has in your future and for your present here on earth and you know that he is totally powerful and that he will always do what he says he's going to do and when you know God is going to accomplish his purpose no matter what, it's a no-brainer to throw your lot in with him. So that's how we get to tr- do, trust God and to obey him more and more. We get it by knowing him. And the more we know him, even when it's a scary trust, or a scary choice, we can choose to be a part of God's story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are all of those things. We thank you that uh, you have invited us, these unworthy people with all kinds of problems and weaknesses and uh, just issues, Lord. You've chosen us to reveal yourself to the world. We're not really sure how that's all going to work out, but we do know that we just need to know you more. Help us, God. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to study your scriptures and see how you've revealed yourself there. Help us to look for you in ways that you are working in our own personal lives. Uh, Help us, God, to know you better. And in that way, when the moment comes, we'll be able to trust you and throw our lot in with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.